The following episode contains explicit language and may not be suitable for all listeners. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Hello? How you doing, Steve? One of the great 1990s pop groups might not have broken out if not for this guy. Hey, how are you? In the mid-1990s, Steve Greenberg was Mercury Records' head of A&R, or artist and repertoire. That's the person who decides whom the label should sign. To kill time, he picked up one of those 90s teen fan magazines. You know, teen, tiger beat, that kind of thing. And he noticed it was full of TV stars, movie stars, but no pop stars. And I remember that when I was a kid, those magazines were just filled with pop stars. That's when he had an epiphany. The pop stars of the day, you know, the Eddie Vedders and the other um, stars of grunge, which was the dominant music at that time, weren't really appropriate to be in a teen magazine for young girls. It wasn't really the right fit. Steve didn't just see an opportunity in teen magazines. He saw an opportunity in the entire music industry. You know, everybody was so into grunge that you start to think that every kid in America is depressed and has a sense of no future. And I kind of felt like that wasn't really true, and that if you really went out and met lots of real junior high school and high school age kids, you'd find out that they just wanted to have happy lives and they wanted to have friends and go out and have a good time. And it wasn't this sort of depressed generation that was really being depicted uh, in the media. And I just thought, like, I bet you that if somebody, you know, was young and happy and, and poppy, that people would really respond. Where do you go to find happy, tiger-beat-appropriate boys who can sing in 1995? Tulsa, Oklahoma. And who do you find? Yep, we're talking about brothers Isaac, Taylor, and Zach, a.k.a. Hanson. The teenage band behind the earworm that's been crawling around my head since the 1990s. Mbop. After Mbop shot straight to number one in 1997, Hanson was everywhere. Not just on the cover of teen magazines, the band performed on Saturday Night Live, the Grammys, the World Series, all in the same year. Then the crash. Drugs, bankruptcy, a dreadful reality show, and then... Wait, that's completely untrue. Two decades later, what's amazing is that Hanson is still here. In fact, the guys are celebrating their 25th year as a band, even if Zach is only 31. And they got to this silver anniversary without rehab, reality TV, or anything even remotely resembling a scandal. Believe me, I scoured police records. Yes, Isaac the guitarist and oldest Hanson brother did run a stop sign in 2003, and he paid his $117 in court costs. He understands the confusion. In the world of entertainment, who I am is strange. I am a dad with three kids who plays in a band with his brothers and likes it. What was I actually searching for? Britney Spears, Justin Bieber, Lindsay Lohan. I admit Hanson sounded almost too good to be true. Famous kids who survived the fame. Not just survived, but prospered. If you listen to their music, they've gotten better. They sound more like Spoon and Squeeze than, say, some washed-up boy band. 
they're also still popular, able to sell out most of the dates on their nationwide anniversary tour. Without a record label, without a cameo in Sharknado 4, how? To understand, I'd have to go to Tulsa. Call it reverse reporting to find out how these guys went right where so many others went wrong. Are you listening, Mr. Bieber? I'm Washington Post national arts reporter Jeff Edgers, and from the Post and WBUR in Boston, this is Edge of Fame, a podcast about the life that happens before, behind, and beyond the spotlight. Today I'm in Tulsa to investigate the secret success of Taylor, Isaac, and Zach, the Hanson brothers. It's 1992, and this is one of the first glimmers of the band that would become Hanson. The brothers are in their living room, practicing for their first gig, an arts festival in Tulsa. They're decked out in blue jeans and black jackets, and 11-year-old Isaac is their eager and endearingly awkward ringleader. We're going to start our program with some, with some songs from the 50s and 60s, and then we'll end our show with some songs that we wrote ourselves. In a pose straight out of Greece, the boys coolly run a comb through their blonde locks. Taylor, just to be honest, has a mean mullet. Then they each pop on a cool pair of shades and join together in a cappella harmony. Now, it might seem odd that three kids in Oklahoma in 1992 are crooning a golden oldie. But if you fast forward to now and you listen to 36-year-old Isaac describing one of the band's major musical influences, you'll understand why. I actually remember seeing the commercial. It was like, collections from the 50s. Order now and you'll get your tape right away. 1958, classic singles from 1958. Isaac is describing a cassette tape he still owns. It's one of those time-life companions, hits from 1958. Walker Hansen, dad, was an accountant in an oil company. When Walker was assigned to South America for work, the kids flew down to join him, and they brought that tape along. On our dad's cassette Walkman thing, I remember listening to that thing all the way to, you know, Ecuador. I remember looking out on Ecuadoriana Airlines. I remember looking out the window, listening to that when I was eight, And then when you got there, you guys kept kept playing it? Yeah, yeah. It was one of those, like, constant on-repeat things where it was just like, I mean, all the other stuff was in Spanish. We didn't speak Spanish. Hanson's parents, Diana and Walker, were high school sweethearts. They performed in school plays together. Mom homeschooled the boys, teaching them Shakespeare and math and, yes, music. Our mom, who is an incredibly gifted singer, and my dad, who... What did she say? She uh, she like sings. Church, she, she, she sang in school. She she got a full ride to go to college as a singer, and basically didn't and turned it down basically because she wanted to raise a family. The brothers Hanson are the oldest three of seven children. But no, I know what you're thinking. The parents were not the horrible stage mom and pops you may expect. Danny Goldberg, who signed the band as chairman of Mercury Records. Walker always told me, look, I got to see what the band wants to do. You know, he never, uh, he never swaggered. He never, uh, 
uh, acted like he was in charge. I think he, uh, uh, you know, really uh, uh, got that he wasn't the star and uh, didn't pretend to be. I just don't have anything bad to say about them. But I think he had a real clarity about the fact that, you know, uh, the band and in particular Taylor, you know, that their opinions were, you know, he was passing them along. But that isn't to say the parents weren't very supportive. Isaac, the oldest brother, is the guitarist and the least guarded. Kudos to my mom. She is fearless. When we said, Mom, we want to make a record, she didn't say, eh, you guys are a bunch of kids. Have a nice, have a nice time. You know, we'll see. She said, oh, really? What songs do you have? Why should we make a record? She understood that that there was a fire in us and a, and a certain level of natural God-given skill that we were starting to kind of naturally hone without her guidance at all. And Zach is the youngest, the drummer and the one who is also, by a long shot, the biggest wise-ass. And I mean that in a good way. My parents didn't um, steal my money. My parents didn't abuse me. My parents didn't ask me to do anything. They asked me what I wanted to do. Uh, and they found a really the, the very difficult balance between pushing your kids to do something um, that's hard and um, not turning your kids into a revenue source or a, um, an object to be admired or, you know, handled. So one thing I want to stop and say before we get much further, there's going to be some shifts in sound as I talk to the brothers. Why? Because I realized right away that if I wanted to come close to getting past the cheery facade of Brothers Hansen, I'd need to divide and conquer. So in Tulsa, I made a special effort to pull each of them away for some one-on-one chatter. So back to that musical passion that seemed to come from the brothers at birth. Zach, for example, told me over a sandwich about the music snobbery that defined his childhood. I remember my neighbor came over and he said, he said something to me about music. And I was like, yeah, I like the Jackson 5. He's like, who are the Jackson 5? I was like, leave right now. I just kicked him out of my house. Because like caring about music, knowing about artists, that was like a deep part of who I was, even at eight years old. There's also a deeper part of all the Hanson brothers. It's rooted in what happened when they decided to form a band, a rock and roll band. That's when the brothers encountered their first resistance. And not from the local critics or grunge rockers already working the circuit. No, they got the stink guy from their church. Isaac told me about this one night after rehearsal. Because we wanted to do rock and roll, and they were like, why are you doing rock and roll? Like the, like the real hardliners. They were like, why wouldn't you just like sing gospel songs? Then there was a time Isaac overheard one of the other churchgoers in conversation with his mother. And I overhear her say, talking to my mom, in this very, like, kind of condescending kind of way. She goes, my son Mark said to me the other day, those handsome kids can really sing great. They're really awesome. They're going to be famous someday. They're going to make great music or something like that. And she very condescendingly smirked and goes, and I told Mark, 
they'll probably just end up as accountants just like their dad. And I went, in my kid inside at like 11 years old, I was like, you. Or to be more specific, the Hanson brothers used that dismissiveness as motivation. In 1996, they went to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, where they gave an impromptu a cappella performance at the festival's softball game. Lucky for them, their future manager happened to be sitting in the bleachers. And that's when they came to the attention of Steve Greenberg, who had already had his Tiger Beat revelation in the supermarket and was looking for a clean-cut boy band. Which is not to say he immediately signed them. Steve admits that when a colleague slipped him a Hanson tape, his first reaction... There's no way these guys are real. Either a grown-up really wrote this song, or a grown-up is really playing the instruments. When you do A&R, you get a lot of records from aspiring kids. And usually there's some adult in the background who's manipulating the whole thing and who's a Svengali that, you know, is trying to fool you into thinking that the kids are more talented than they are. But in the case of Hanson, the kids really were that talented. Mercury signed Hanson in 1996. And in 1997, released Middle of Nowhere, with Steve Greenberg as executive producer. 1997 was the beginning of a new generation of pop stars. The year started with the U.S. release of the Spice Girls' Wannabe. That was followed in quick succession over the next 18 months, with the first big hits from Backstreet Boys, in sync, 98 degrees, and Britney Spears. They were the first of what then became a series of boy bands that that made it. Uh, you know, when MTV just started their show, Total Request Live, and you know, uh, Backstreet Boys and In Sync, uh, they became bigger. They, they, you know, they they stayed in that lane in a different way than Hanson did. But but Hanson came is what is what kind of created that energy at that moment in time. Hanson often got lumped in with this sugary, manufactured pop, unfairly. True, they were boys in a band, but that's about all they had in common with the manufactured slicksters in record producer Lou Pearlman's boy band Stable. They wrote their own songs, they played their own instruments, and didn't have a stylist. And they didn't need one. Their debut album went multi-platinum because of their first single, Mbop. You probably remember it as pop candy with a killer hook. But listen to the words more closely, to the part that goes, So hold on to the ones that really care. In the end, they'll be the only ones there. When you get old and start losing your hair, can you tell me who will still care? As Zach explains over lunch, the song is actually about losing friends and feeling different, a common thing for the Hanson brothers when they were growing up. We were already dealing with this feeling of, like, people around us, people who are our friends, you know, even some relatives are sort of like, this is a little weird, this thing you want to do. Shouldn't you be more normal? You know, eight-year-old kids shouldn't really be thinking about being in a band or wanting to play music on a Saturday. They should be playing video games or on the Little League team or, right? And so we were already processing that kind of feeling like, wow, 
But you mean like a, a little bit of an oddball? I mean like like or... hearing the the mother under her breath go, don't worry, they're not going to do this music thing forever. This is just a passing thing. But Mbop was just the beginning of what would become Hanson Mania. If you were there that summer, you couldn't avoid it. Umbop quickly knocked the notorious B.I.G. off the top of the Billboard Hot 100. The single topped the charts in 27 countries, from Australia to Sweden. Before you knew it, Hanson became the rare teen band to grace the cover of Teen Magazine and to top the Village Voices critics poll. The band played Saturday Night Live and made a guest appearance in a skit where Will Ferrell and Helen Hunt took the brothers hostage in an elevator. Did you write the song, Mmm Bop? Yeah. Yeah, we did. You will now listen to this song for as long as it takes for you to feel the pain that we felt this past summer. Even Oprah had Hanson play her talk show. As she cut to a commercial, she found herself singing the chorus. And it's at that moment, when Hanson was at its peak, that the brothers showed what really made them different. Mercury Records desperately wanted to capitalize on their success. Everyone knew another record would be huge. So what did Hanson do? They refused to go back into the studio. Politely, of course, they are Hanson. But still, as Zach explains, they wanted to prove themselves on the road, not in the studio. What we wanted was to be a band known for our music and there's only one scenario where you can undeniably show off your craft and it's when you stand on stage with an instrument and everyone knows that that's you and it's coming from you and it's your voice and it's your hands and it's your sound and so we felt like that was important it was more important than having another record or another hit song maybe to him But Danny Goldberg still looks back at that moment with regret. He knew even then how fast things change. Hot one minute, Menudo the next. And three years, that's an eternity in a pop life. Three years is how long Hanson took to put out their second album, this time around. It's getting colder in the stitch where I lie. That record barely cracked the top 20. The one thing that would have made commercial sense was for them to make a second album more quickly than they did. And I did try to get them to do that, and they just absolutely wouldn't do it. You know, they, they had their own clock in their mind. You know, there's a rhythm to careers, and if you miss a beat, it's very hard to get back into the flow or whatever. And, of course, I had my own narrow self-interest as a corporate executive worrying about my own, you know, quarterly and yearly numbers. So, you know, I, I, I certainly was not uh, purely objective about it, but I was right. That's what he says, right? Well, it's more complicated. And there are three brothers in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who might be able to explain. Hanson reveals its lowest moment after the break. Hanson struggled after releasing its second album this time around. The year was 2000. And his youngest Hanson brother, Zach, remembers all too well, a massive corporate merger was happening in the music world. 
Hanson's label, Mercury, was being consumed by Island Def Jam. That second album was deeply damaged in the promotion cycle by the fact that the, the label had merged and we lost almost everyone who actually signed us. Danny wasn't there. That's Danny Goldberg, former chair of the label. Steve wasn't there. Steve Greenberg, the head of A&R. Like almost every radio rep was, was changed over. We had like one publicist that was still there. For the next three years, Hanson struggled to finish that third album. The new execs rejected nearly everything the band presented, even when they collaborated on songs with Matthew Sweet and Carole King. You can watch the lowest point in a documentary called Strong Enough to Break. And seriously, witnessing Hanson deal with these executives is a lesson in self-control or self-abuse. At one point in the film, Isaac, Taylor, and Zach get on the phone with one of the suits at the label, a guy named Jeff Fenster. Fenster's claim to fame, he discovered Britney Spears. Well, hello. Hello. Fenster proceeds to totally dismiss some songs the band recorded with Greg Wells, the same Greg Wells who would go on to produce massive hits for a singer named Adele. Jeff, Middle Hanson brother Taylor, the band's piano player and lead singer, is holding the phone. As the conversation continues, you want him to throw down the receiver, stomp it, and scream something unprintable. Instead, he shakes his head and clenches his jaw, fighting to contain himself. Well, I mean, I think. I just, you'd have to uh, you'd have to understand our position if what we just heard completely enrages us. I mean, to be honest, you have 23 killer songs. But we don't have an album. Fenster goes on to tell the Hanson brothers that he wants them to start over from scratch. Taylor is less than pleased. Because if he wants to make Britney Spears or if he wants to make Limp Biscuit, that changes our perspective on what record we're doing. That feels a lot like old Hanson to me, and I'm wondering whether in your head, if that is maybe where you're going, and we're trying to go in a, in a direction I'm which is more organic than that, and, and maybe that's part of our problem. It was more than a relief to the brothers when Hanson split with Island Def Jam and went out on their own. Underneath, released in 2004, debuted in the number one slot on Billboard's independent chart. Its lead single, Penny and Me, was a bona fide hit. The Hanson brothers called their record label 3CG, an acronym for Three Car Garage. Not only did the band once release a compilation album called Three Car Garage, but before they found success on the charts, they used an actual Three Car Garage as their recording studio. Oh, and an interesting thing about 3CG, the label is just part of what would become the Hanson Empire. In 2008, Isaac, Taylor, and Zach gave up their apartment in New York City to return to their native Tulsa. We came back here because we didn't want to lose who we were. And, and to the credit of my parents, they were like, I don't want to screw up my kids. This isn't Austin or Portland. Tulsa is a work in progress, and the brothers became a part of that progress. 
They rented a building downtown and set up what has become effectively Hanson Inc. You, you do, um, you, so you take photos? Is that something, yeah? yeah? Do you, yeah. all digital or do you use film or no, what? No, 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 film, yeah. I mean, so these- Inside, you'll find a state-of-the-art recording studio and yeah. all sorts of Hanson swag. Everything from jewelry and t-shirts to a board game called Hansonopoly. There are also nearly a dozen offices for Hanson's employees. And as Taylor shows me, every employee owns a particular book, All You Need to Know About the Music Business by Donald S. Passman. Yeah, yeah we, we give that? this, every, anytime somebody joins our team, we have them read you this give book. them this book? I've never read yeah. this book. But Taylor Isaac and Zach have numerous times. That was one of the first books that we, we all read before we got signed. We were looking at Michael Jackson and, and the Beach Boys and stuff, and we you hear the folklore about these like groups, you know, the bad, the the managers and the labels. I mean, it was you know, there's there's this guy with a big cigar, and he's gonna take advantage of you somehow. Something's gonna happen, and so we kind of went up with armor, you know, armor up. And to some extent, that armor up approach has actually stuck with the guys. About ten years ago. The television network A&E greenlit a pilot for a reality show about the Hanson brothers. I asked Zach about this as we walked around Tulsa. He says that the reality show producers assured him they would produce an accurate portrayal of their lives. Hanson believed them at first. I remember distinctly the day I knew that it was completely not going to work was the day that they came to me and um, they said so what do you think? Could we get your, your wives to like argue about like what to feed the kids? Like like one maybe wants a healthy thing and one wants like like not healthy thing. I was like, what is wrong with you? No. Why would we do that? Like because they have scripts and they have right they have and they, and they need a, a they thing. need they need drama. Yeah. And and that was enough drama Tulsa to them. Tulsa housewives. Tulsa housewives. To this day, Zach says. The band gets a lot of invitations to do reality TV. I would imagine if we were willing to play along and become characters or caricatures, I assume it would do well because it seems like people are sort of interested in that. Why do you have so many kids? Uh, Why do you not bike? Why do you do what you do? How did you survive? Which gets to an important element of being Hanson. It's not just the willingness to say no. It's the impenetrable wall the brothers have constructed between what's public and what's private. Come to Tulsa and the guys will spend hours with you at the office, at a tiki bar, backstage. But there are places you will not go, like home to meet the family or to a Little League game. And you can beg and plead, trust me, I did. But they're never going to let you talk to their dad, Walker, even if he still manages many of their business interests. These are areas that are simply off limits, and there are others. Religion. I was honest when I met the guys. I explained that when I mentioned to friends that I was going to see Hanson, many of them brought up two things. Don't they have like 23 kids, and aren't they super religious? Close on the first part. The Hanson brothers do have 12 children between them. They are all married to women who are not in the music business. But the second part? I have to say, I'm really not sure where they stand on religion. They wouldn't talk about it much. I mean, they told me they go to church and have faith. Here's Isaac. We grew up thinking that going to church and that kind of stuff was important. Right. And you still do. And I still feel that way. I mean, you know, I was at church this morning. Right. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I don't go to any evangelical church, but 
but um, but you know that's that's a whole other thing. Um, but I mean, the truth is actually the the point that you're making. So the funny thing is, people have <laughs> people have tried to make us out to be like some like weird like religious cult thing. Danny Goldberg said Papa Hansen and his sons were actually the opposite. I always said, you know, I mean, if all <laughs> you know, if all Christians were <laughs> were like Walker Hansen and his family, you know, I would uh, seriously think about converting. You know, he's a uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I think they really kind of uh, are the real deal, you know. I think they've been grounded in a, uh, you know, in family and religion in a way that's authentic and that, and that uh, you know, uh, pr- protected them from uh, doing crazy things. He then told me an interesting story about Hansen. One day, just after Mbop, Gus Van Zant, the famed director behind My Private Idaho and Goodwill Hunting, approached him with an offer to make a video. Goldberg was intrigued but nervous. He called their father. I thought, wow, this would be exactly what we would want to grow. And I called Hanson and I told him about Gus and explained that he was gay and, you know, some of the movies he's made. And without hesitating, Walker just, I said, I just want you to know, because I know, you know, I don't know what exactly your feelings are, but I, I, don't, I don't want you to find out later and wish I had told you. And without hesitation, he says, if you think he'll make a good video, then that's the right person to make the video. Another sensitive spot for these brothers seems to be being brothers. Well, not exactly, but the challenge of being brothers in a band. Now, fraternal dysfunction is not exactly a rarity in the rock world. Oasis, the Black Crows, the Kinks. The first time I bring up the idea of tension, Isaac gets annoyed. Like I've asked him to read his diary. It's never been perfectly rosy. I mean, look, we have often had better manners than to do our dirty laundry in public. And it's not particularly edifying or valuable for us to just be talking, talking shit about each other, even though, you know, there are things we're kind of irritated about. He softens after a while, maybe when he realizes I'm not trying to turn this into an Access Hollywood special. You know, most of the things that we fight about are not really brother things. They're creative vision things. Songwriting stuff, arranging the, you know, what songs end up on the set list, those kinds of things. I mean, that's where the kind of fisticuffs come out, and you're like, no, dude, this is wrong. But there's true deep loyalty, says Danny Goldberg, the former label boss. I mean, the other thing that obviously was, is interesting to me about Hanson is uh, Taylor's devotion to his brothers, because there's just no question that Taylor could have gone solo right away. Uh, and, uh, you know, could have, could have <clears throat> tried to compete with Justin Timberlake, you know, for that slot in the culture. And it was just nothing that was going to happen. The priority was the family. Taylor, the babyface lead singer, was born singing, according to Brother Isaac. My producer called him dreamy. He's also the most polished and guarded of the three. He takes his music very seriously. There were times during rehearsal when he genuinely seemed annoyed when Isaac and Zach became too chatty. Generally, you do sense the deep family loyalty. But there was a point when things boiled over. In 2010, Hanson released its fifth studio album, Shout It Out, featuring the Blues Brothers-inspired single, Thinking About Something. You've been out there shaking, tell the boss chasing. When you get home, you think I'll be the bigger man. Then they went on tour. In 2012, 
they started recording their sixth studio album, Anthem. Then they stopped. Why? Well, says Taylor, after being together as a band for 20 years, the brothers were fried. Everyone was kind of burned out. And, you know, all of a sudden you look around and you're like, you have three kids and you have four kids and you have people's lives are evolving and and the and that way creates pressure that creates real pressure i mean so sometimes we don't factor that in it's not three guys sleeping in bunk beds at, in four, at 14 16 and 12 there are three dads that own businesses that they've owned for 20 years now i asked if there was a song on anthem that was about their relationship as brothers and bandmates well, I know one. What's that? Yeah. I'm not sure you even want to do it. Well, I don't know. I think Already Home is... Completely, yeah. Yeah, totally. The song, Already Home. Some lyrics? I see you keeping your distance, but you're not telling me why. I see you keeping your distance, but That song was, like, uh, more about us than about you listening. Is there ever, like, a chance or a fear that the, like, the band could break up? I think there's always a chance, you know? It's like, is there a chance a marriage could break up? Yeah, but that's not the goal. <laughs> yeah. You're going to fight every, or you're going to fight the tide in that sense. So, Hanson finished up the album, did another world tour, and after decades of this relentless album tour, album tour, album tour cycle, they stepped off the treadmill. We need to put our energy into building some other things and get out of that cycle. The guys had been making music together for so long, they started playing around with making something else. Something they'd become especially passionate about in their adult years. Craft beer. Welcome to the fourth annual Hop Jam Beer and Music Festival. In 2014, the guys founded the Hop Jam Festival in Tulsa. They even started brewing their own beer. Sorry, folks, they call it Mm Hops. When I meet Hanson, they're gearing up to hit the road again for their 25th anniversary tour. They released their greatest hits album and a new single, I Was Born. Reality is, even their one-time booster, Danny Goldberg, has to admit that maybe Hanson ultimately made the right choice for themselves. Maybe they could have sold more records or been more famous. But in their terms... They beat the system. You know, they, they've done things completely on their own terms without worrying about uh, any other metrics except except their own. And, and they could have done other things to make more money, but, you know, they, they put their personal happiness and contentment first, and then did the best they could within that. These days, Hanson may not be blasting Beyonce off the charts, but the brothers are their own bosses, and their live shows are full of screaming fans. And they appreciate the love. So much so that each year the guys release a special EP just for their fan club. 
They blast out weekly newsletters. They even offer giveaways where fans can win the chance to interview the brothers or join them up on stage. So more than 25 years after performing a cappella doo-wop in their living room, Taylor, Isaac, and Zach Hansen have certainly grown, but they haven't forgotten their past, in spite of or because of everything. If you haven't already, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Edge of Fame is a production of The Washington Post and WBUR, Boston's NPR station. This episode was produced by Catherine Brewer and edited by Jessica Alpert and Iris Adler. Sound designed by John Parati and Paul Vikas. Our executive producers are Jessica Alpert, Jessica Stahl, and me. For more information about today's show and other episodes of Edge of Fame, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Edgers Podcast. If you do the Twitter thing, you can find me at Jeff Edgers. That's Jeff spelled G-E-O-F-F. See you next week.